Greetings, I am Nidhi, a family doctor. Having practiced in a variety of settings, different countries, rural and urban environments has given me the privilege of caring for many patients and sharing important moments of their lives. This podcast tells us of the lessons learned from these stories, the thoughts provoked, emotions generated, as well as a hope that I can create an understanding of actions and lead a path towards kindness. This episode is recorded by a guest speaker. The Meaning of Comfort It was April 2020. The ICU was quieter than usual, with the exception of the hissing sounds of ventilators and beeping monitors. Overlaying this was the hum of voices of doctors calling families to provide updates and deliver hard news. Visitors were a rare sight unless a patient was at the end of their life. There was a new level of intensity in the energy of the unit that I hadn't witnessed in the years before. The ICU physician says to me, I don't think she gets it. I'm worried she doesn't understand he's dying. This physician's patient, like so many during this time, was dying from COVID-19. His spouse insisted on doing everything and from the physician's perspective was unwilling to contemplate changing aspects of his care, including code status. The worry, the fatigue, the distress of caring day in and day out for dying patients and those otherwise impacted by COVID-19 were all clearly marked on the ICU physician's face and in her voice. Our palliative care team had been consulted to see this patient. Tell me more about what worries you, I said to this physician colleague. Understandably, she was primarily worried about causing her patient Samuel undue suffering. She felt the best medical plan for him was to transition to a comfort-oriented plan of care and that interventions like CPR would not be medically beneficial. She was worried that Samuel was imminently dying regardless of all aggressive interventions already being done, including intubation, ventilators, and multiple blood pressure medications. She also feared that the patient's wife, Rosaline, did not fully grasp the gravity of the situation, given her repeated requests to continue everything. The physician didn't want Rosaline to feel blindsided when the patient died. Because of these worries, the medical team had attempted to discuss Samuel's care plan with Rosaline repeatedly, sometimes even multiple times a day. Rosaline had been granted a visitor exception given how poorly Samuel was doing, and was expected that afternoon. I went to Samuel's ICU room and donned all the necessary personal protective equipment. I remember feeling tense and nervous, unsure of the reception I might receive. As an inpatient palliative care social worker in a large tertiary care safety net hospital, I'm accustomed to meeting people during intense moments, often when people are very seriously ill or closer to the end of their lives but this time felt different. I now wonder if these particular feelings of unease and anxiety were indicators of the fatigue and stress of so many similar encounters over a very short time span that were starting to set in. Situations of speaking to families whose loved ones were actively dying of a disease we knew so little about at that time who feared that treatments would be stopped without having given their loved one a full chance at recovery because of limitations in resources, 
and who feared and expected that this would be yet another situation where the system would fail them, as it had so many times before. There were also the physical barriers of gowns, gloves, masks, and face shields. I remember how Samuel's wife Rosaline instantly stiffened, as if to guard herself when I entered the room. She didn't look at me. Her grief was palpable. Seeing her reaction, my heart clenched, and any agenda I might have had for our encounter flew out of my head. I introduced myself and told her I was aware of the many conversations she has had with the doctors and that I was not there to rehash anything if she did not want to. Her shoulders instantly slumped in relief. She looked directly into my eyes and said, Okay. We stood there in silence for several moments, watching her husband who was lying in the bed with machines and medications helping to keep his body alive. Finally, I said, Will you tell me about him? Will you tell me a little about who he is? At first, I wasn't sure she heard me or was even going to respond. I felt like an interloper in this moment between Rosaline and Samuel. But then she gave a small smile and began to describe a loving, devoted husband and father of young children. She described how they enjoyed spending time together, just being in each other's company. I asked very simply how her children were doing, and she paused. The silence stretched out, almost engulfing the room. Finally, responding hesitantly, Rosaline shared that she didn't feel equipped to explain to their children that their father was dying. She tearfully told me that she and Samuel had always shared their burdens and responsibilities, including work and caring for the home and family. Rosaline told me they were both from the Caribbean and most of their family and friends were there. She was grappling with the new reality of what life without him would be like, and the idea of raising their children without him was daunting. I remember her looking at me and saying, He's dying. I know this. I nodded. I asked her what would be important for us to know about Samuel as a person so that we could take the best care of him possible. At that moment, she seemed to gather herself up. She said that everything Samuel did was for his children. He would want them to know he had done everything possible to have continued living to be with them. Rosaline said that she was accepting that there will be a time in the very near future that God will call him home. In the meantime, she needed to know that she has honored the person Samuel is by continuing all current treatments and ensuring he is well cared for until the time that his heart naturally stops. I reframed this with her and Rosaline readily agreed that she would want all current treatments to continue but did not feel that CPR would be helpful at the time that Samuel dies since God will have called him. Rosaline felt strongly that she would not and could not interfere with God's plan at that point. Having their children know that their father had done what he could to live to see them grow was what would ultimately bring her and her family comfort while centering Samuel's true character. As I left Samuel's room that day, 
I thanked Rosaline. And despite the restrictions, the gloves, the gowns, we held hands for a short moment. I shared the details of my encounter with the ICU physician. I suggested they allow Rosaline time to simply visit with her husband, reassure her that he will continue to be cared for, and to listen for invitations to talk about Samuel's care plan. I felt if there was an opportunity to discuss Samuel's care, the medical team should make a recommendation in the context of what was important to Samuel and his family, which was to feel that he had done everything possible to survive for his family until his heart stopped and God called him home. The next day, I learned that the physician did have a chance to speak with Rosaline, who agreed that changing his code status to do not attempt resuscitation while continuing all other treatments would still align with the goals for Samuel. Samuel died in the middle of the night. Rosaline's gift beyond advocating for her husband was showing us that perhaps by creating space for her to tell Samuel's story, we learned their definition of suffering and comfort. This, ultimately, provided guidance and a small measure of comfort for both Rosaline and the healthcare team around how Samuel lived in his last moments, even amidst such an intense and chaotic time. <laughs>